Sisters and brothers in Christ, grace and peace to you this day from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. The Gulf War, Y2K, 9-11, the Mayan calendar, California fires, tsunamis, and earthquakes. These are all things associated with predictions of the end times or the coming destruction of the world. Since the time of Jesus Christ, there have been more than 182 predictions to the end of the world. And there are 10 more already predicted in the next 100 years. Even Martin Luther predicted that the second coming of Christ would happen before the year 1600. As we near the end of the church calendar year, our lectionary writers tend to focus on these texts having to do with the end times. In theological circles, we know these as eschatological texts, big churchy word. But really what it means is that it has to do with the final events of history, or maybe a better way of understanding the final destination of humanity. And in our gospel lesson from Luke today, it does not necessarily leave us with warm, fuzzy feelings. In fact, all of the readings for today have followed a common theme. Many that believe that God punishes using wars and disasters in our world find their justification here in chapter 21 of Luke, as Jesus himself tells us of these events. Now, hearing these texts may leave us in an uneasy place today. We are told that Jesus and the disciples are in Jerusalem, and the disciples are in absolute awe of the grandeur and the magnificence of the temple. And Jesus hears what the disciples are saying, and he begins to prophesy, and he says, he tells them things that will happen and events that will happen that were unimaginable. In fact, the events that he foretells sound an awful lot like the Old Testament God of wrath. Historically, though, by the time the Gospel of Luke had been written, many of the things that Jesus spoke about had come true. All of these indicators that he had told the disciples. In fact, the author of Luke even seems to be writing the text as a reflection. One of the most impressionable events that happened in that time was the complete and utter destruction of the temple. Jesus said, not one stone will be left on another. Now, Herod's temple was one of the most ornate, grand, beautiful structures that had ever been built by human hands. No expense had been spared. We're told the granite was so bright and polished that when you saw the temple at a distance, it looked like a snow-capped mountain. The temple was huge. The outer court alone would accommodate over 400,000 people. And up close, the white marble and the gold accents shone so bright that the historian Josephus described them as if you were looking into the sun itself by how much they shone. It was the very place that God dwelled on earth. It was holy ground. And the temple had stood as a sign of the strength of the God of the Jews to all people and for all nations to know. And it was completely unimaginable that it could be destroyed. But this is exactly what happened in 70 AD. The, arm, the Roman army destroyed the temple. Not a stone was left standing on another. In fact, the fires that destroyed the temple were so intense that granite actually shattered. 
If you get a chance to walk on the Temple Mount, you'll see these gravel pieces around the edge of the Temple Mount uh, that is believed to be the remnants of these stones. This was also the time of the first Jewish revolt, and in this event, over a million Jews were killed and 100,000 were taken and enslaved by Rome. But after hearing this, the disciples try to understand how they're to prepare for these things that might be coming. Jesus, tell us when this might happen. What are the signs that we should look for? But Jesus goes on to tell them of even more wars and catastrophic events that will come, earthquakes and famine and plagues. Then he tells them that they will be persecuted. They will be hated because of his name, that families will turn on each other, and yes, even some will be put to death. Now, I don't know about you, but this actually sounds really familiar. Whether we look back historically or we open the newspaper or watch the news this morning, this is stuff going on in our world. Earthquakes and famines and wars and broken relationships and broken families, all of this happens each and every day. And the amazing thing is we still look for signs in it. but this is kind of who we are. We want to try to understand what may be coming and how we can be prepared for it. I mean, you are Dakota people, right? You all have survival kits in the southwest corner of your basement in case of a tornado, right? Well, maybe not so much. But what we fail to recognize is that Christ is speaking into our life today. Because he knows that sin speaks in our lives. He knows that fear speaks in our lives. He knows that loss speaks in our lives. And then there's the destruction of the world around you. It is the persecution of the body by disease. And even the death that comes because of that. And the things that you rely on, or better yet, the people you rely on, become unreliable. And in fact, in many ways, may even start to attack you, to burden you. Family relationships and long-time friendships, in many ways, become not life-giving, but life-taking. And when you turn to those in your life for support, they are seemingly nowhere to be found. And this is when you begin to look at other things, to look for the signs. Signs that point this way and that, and signs that tell you what's ahead and what to look forward to, and signs that even tell you when something is finished. And you begin to anticipate what the sign is actually pointing to. And may even begin to put your trust in them. Even here, Jesus points out our sin and he tells you, do not put your trust in these things. Because false prophets will come and they will lead you astray. They are not me. Often this type of trust is revealed in our politics. And we don't have to look far to see the effects of putting our trust in people or processes. And this is why there is such great division amongst people in politics. 
Now you go to the polls to elect your new Messiah. The one that will finally deliver the utopia that you seek. You step into that voting booth and you put aside the needs of your neighbor and you are focused completely on your needs, your dreams, what you want life to look like. Politics has become the last great religion that binds people together. And then when your candidate is voted in, it is now up to them to live up to the promises that they have given you, right? They must deliver on them. And in these days, we are certainly hearing politics at work. But the thing we forget is that these promises come from human means and human abilities. And there is certainly no certainty in that. And we get that. But it leaves us in an uneasy place. Hearers of God's word, through his words today, Christ uses his prophecy to knock us just a little bit off balance. He uses these things that he describes to leave us a little uneasy because he finds us exactly where he has warned us from going. That all of these things and places and people where we put our faith and our trust are not ultimately going to deliver what you're looking for. They're also not going to deliver the hope and the peace that you seek from them. Christ speaks a word into our lives today. He tells us, not a hair of your head will perish, and by your endurance you will gain your soul. He speaks to you today so that you would hear what he has already done. That sin and death and struggle and stress does not have the final word in your life. Christ speaks hope into your life where there is darkness, where there is stress, where there is loss. And he tells you, put your trust in him. Do not despair as the events of the world play out and leave you uneasy. Because he has told you these things will happen. So that you would find your hope in him and not be dismayed, but that you would trust in him as the Lord who knows with certainty and trust in him as the one who reveals truth. He's telling you these things are not a threat, but they are a promise. And this promise is that because of his death and his resurrection, he has already dealt with these things. And then he tells you he's chosen you and gathered you to himself to give you a means to trust in him. Again, he gives you his word today to give you endurance and strength and with it hope. And he does this by interrupting your life and gathering you today with these people in this time to give you this promise again. His word comes from the one who has endured the end times of life. His word comes from the one who has endured suffering and loss and death, but has overcome it by God's glory. Now, he does not give you false hope. He does not tell you you will not suffer. He does not tell you you will not endure pain. He does not tell you you will not suffer grief and loss. 
But instead, he gives you the only hope that can endure all of these things because he gives you himself. Your only hope lies in Christ and the promise that he has delivered to you. Now, St. Paul reminds us in our Second Thessalonians text today that while we must still live under the effects of this sinful world, of this fallen world, where we will endure suffering, where we will endure fear and pain and those things, we simultaneously live in God's heavenly kingdom when we are freed in Christ. When his death and his resurrection speaks into your world and says, that has ended. Because in Jesus Christ, the world you fear has ended. And it is his word that grants strength and endurance, and especially his peace. So now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, protect your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.